Hello and welcome back to the Troutman Pepper Battery and Storage Podcast. Today I am very pleased to have as my guest, FERC Commissioner Nora Brownell. Nora, welcome to the program. Thanks so much. It's really exciting to reconnect with you and to have an opportunity to talk about the future. We know that you're going to speak your mind, and that's part of the reason why we wanted to have you on the program. It is great to reconnect after a long time. Just really briefly to remind our listeners, you were on the FERC as a commissioner from 2001 to 2006, I believe. But before that, you were also a commissioner at the Pennsylvania PUC from 97 to 2001, and you're the former president of NARUG. So a lot of history there and history that we will enjoy diving into. Before we do that, why don't we just take a second, maybe you could just tell us a little bit about what you're doing right now. I know you're the co-founder of SB Energy Solutions. Why don't you just tell us what you've been up to lately, and then we can kind of dive into a conversation. Great. So been doing so many interesting things. So what I realized after being on the Pennsylvania PUC and on the FERC was it's really hard to change a mature and entrenched industry. And what we could not do as regulators, because we had a lot of political powers who love that monopoly model, I realized we could do through technology. I also realized a clean energy economy will certainly never get to net zero, but more importantly, we'll never deal with true issues of affordability and empowered customers unless we invest in technologies that increase efficiencies, that give better data to both utilities and to all of the users, and more importantly, to empower customers to manage their own buying decisions. It's been so exciting. I'm a partner in Clean Energy Ventures, which is a fund that invests in early stage, that missing million, technologies that can reduce GHGs. So those might be battery technologies. They might be metering, which we'll talk a little bit about, but any number of things, including materials, building materials and others. So it's been a great place to be. Well, it sounds like it. And I think back to the early days, One of the things that you mentioned that resonated with me, and I think I've even said it on past podcasts, is that when I look back on my own career, it's sort of a travelogue of these technological changes, right? So we go back to the beginning, and one of the big issues when you were on the FERC is, okay, well, we need to get folks maybe into RTOs or ISOs, develop markets, but, you know, it was like the dash to gas, as we used to say, and then, right? And then after the gas, it was, okay, there was a lot of wind development. And then after wind development, there was solar development. And then, of course, you have this podcast and you've got storage. I think we're naive to think it's going to stop, right? Now, beyond storage, you've got things like renewable natural gas, hydrogen, whatever the next thing is that's coming down the pike. And so I think just right off the bat, your opening remarks about technological change really being the change agent, that resonates with me and that's been my experience. As far as storage is concerned, which is the topic of this podcast, we just touch on that. In terms of your current experience, you mentioned that storage may be the answer. What are some of the things you're involved with where storage is part of the solution? I think we're looking at a lot of different kinds of storage. I think we're looking at a lot of different technologies. 
The California Energy Commission, for example, is investing huge amounts of money in long duration storage. And they're actually finding it difficult to find people who are willing to co-invest. So I think one of the challenges is defining the market, what we need, and also making sure the rules and the environment are satisfactory so you can deploy this and encourage both public and private investment. None of this works if we continue to rely on, oh, let's just give it to the ratepayer because they're willing to tolerate anything. That doesn't encourage innovation. It doesn't get you to the right place. But I also think we're seeing great advancements in short-term technologies in homes. Everyone in California is doing a little battery storage along with solar and other tools. So I think one of the things about storage is it's got so many different applications, whether that be grid, whether there be for reliance and resilience, whether it be for all kinds of applications. And I love the idea that we're not doing the once and done. We have lithium batteries, that's great, but people are looking at a lot of different kinds and types. So we'll have, I think, an open market. We won't necessarily be relying on one type and one resource when you think of precious metals. But one of the things I think we really have to think about is you mentioned it was dash to gas and then it was dash to renewables. Before that, it was coal and boy, wasn't coal great. And then, oh, it was nuclear until we had Three Mile Island and a lot of cost overruns. And then we, this is a big, very complicated puzzle and all of the pieces need to fit together. And I think one of the frustrations and frankly, the wastes is not thinking about, okay, if we have this kind of generation capacity, what does the mix need to be with? If we have this kind of climate change issues in California, what kind of battery deployment do we need? If we really want broad deployment of EVs, what needs to happen to the grid? Because if you talk to any utility operator in private, they'll say, no way, no way can we support broad deployment of EVs, much less the electrification of the entire universe. So again, all of these things are great individually, but we need to think of a holistic approach. My opinion would be that we'd have a business model that is not cost plus, but is a business model that is wires only. You'd have to create the best possible platform, both T and D, on which you could hang anything, whether it be broad electrification, whether it be broader renewables, whether it be empowering customers, but we need to put the pieces of the puzzle together and think what it's going to look like instead of doing all these things iteratively because they don't work and we don't create the markets for them. That's more than you ever wanted to know. No, it's a good big picture perspective because I feel like we've had so many entrepreneurs on the program and they're great. And I love talking and I love the energy that they bring and they're very passionate about their companies. But you're right, it's thinking on a micro level, a lot of times, a lot of times I think it's, okay, we could solve this part of the problem, but you're right. I'm not sure that anyone is taking a step back and looking at it holistically. And maybe, you know, we had the 2005 energy policy act every once in a while, we get a big federal act and I'm not sure that they always get it right, but somebody needs to look at the whole picture. The RTOs are trying to look at things on a regional level, but it's very much a regional level. It's not a national level. The various states 
as you say, California, New York has had their reimagining the grid proceedings. It sounded a lot like what you were saying, where the T&D is kind of the platform for what people want to do. But we're not looking at it on a holistic basis, I think, to be fair. And then you've got the different agendas. And I really don't want to get into national politics, but you have <laughs> kind of the climate change is everything and we need to solve for that. It's sort of like a meteor is heading to the earth. And if we don't do something about that meteor, forget it. I mean, that's one perspective. Another perspective, you mentioned consumer costs and the cost to the consumer. And I feel like that used to be a big issue, but I don't hear as much about that anymore. And maybe we should, right? And of course, there's the reliability perspective, resiliency and reliability and keeping the lights on. All these big sort of macro issues, but I'm not sure who's balancing. The word that we've lost, right? And you'll know this because as a FERC commissioner, the old farmers union, the balancing of investor and consumer interests. What's happened to that? Nobody talks about balancing these various interests. And like I said, I don't want to necessarily get into national politics, but maybe that's a lesson for politics in general. Nobody talks about balancing anymore. It's, hey, we got to do it all this way or all that way. And there's no, anyway, that's my perspective on it. And in the energy industry, I think we've certainly lost that to some degree. You're absolutely right. And here right. is kind of another way to look at it. I was recruited to come to the Pennsylvania Commission by Governor Ridge because they were starting restructuring. And I'd worked with him, my chairman and I had worked when he was on the House Banking Committee. And I said, you know, I don't know, I don't know anything about li literally nothing. And which, by the way, a lot of people reminded him of that. <laughs> but it became really clear very fast, as my then boss, the chairman, said, just follow the money, you'll figure it out. And what strikes me is no one ever talks about the energy sector as economic development. That's absolutely what it is. Even if we don't want to get wrapped up in the politically explosive words like climate change and this and that, think about it as economic development. And if you think about economic development, you say, what is the business structure? What is it that we need to drive a system that will support every sector of our economy, whether it's manufacturing, whether it's individual, whether it's EV, whether it's electrification in general. And if you do that, you say, well, then why do we have a business model for utilities that worked, I admit, for 100 years, but is not fit for purpose in the future, is resistant to change, has cost plus, as opposed to performance-based, is being asked to do a lot of things, as are the RTOs. And the incentive for change just isn't there because we are treating it as, well, we need all these renewables. Okay, you want the renewables? I do too. But how about thinking about those cues at the RTOs? What do we need to do about that? So I think we need to think more of what does the economy need? And an economy, I think, includes environmental issues. When your state is burning down, that's an economic issue. So I'm not excluding them. And I think if you also then have performance-based rate making, you say to the RTOs, if you do the following three things, then we'll put that RTO adder back in. But right now the RTOs, some people call them the Association of Incumbent Utilities. Arguably we need RTO 2.0, 3.0, but we need a way to get there without fighting the endless who's in control and who owns this and who owns that. We need to say, what are the things that we want from RTOs and how are we going to measure them? Ditto utilities. 
Utilities, you say you want AMI meters, for example. There's other metering technology that costs a third, but if I'm in a cost-based business model, why do I want that utility? I had a utility say to me the other day, I was talking about a company that expands capacity on transmission. He said, why do I want that? Because I'd rather big build transmission. In your dreams, pal, because under the current regime, it's gonna be 20 years before you build big transmission. And in terms of a balance, isn't it better to expand the capacity we have while we are doing these other things? And then I think just one more comment, and that is all of these technologies, whether it be metering, whether it be battery, whether it be EVs, whether it be line enhancement capacity, they all give data. And data is going to tell us a whole lot of things that make us uncomfortable. We're going to discover we've made some pretty bad planning decisions, pretty expensive planning mistakes. And I think the data will also drive us to better planning. So we build the right things in the right places, and we give the users data that they can have some influence over what gets done and what doesn't get done. That all of that answers also the issue of affordability, which I do hear. I hear we can't do that because it's too expensive. We can't do that before. Geez, I could argue that, you know, some generation projects that are hundreds of billions of dollars and four years late might not have been a good thing for affordability. I could say that. But in any event, I think we need to incentivize people to imagine, imagine if Apple just said, you know what, we love that iPhone, we're not doing anything else. Imagine if Microsoft did that. Imagine, so we have an industry in which there's no competition. We never created markets that would substitute for that. Regulators cannot substitute for competition. So we need a fit for purpose future build, and that's going to involve a lot of change, including regulatory change. I think the statement that there's no competition, sort of, right? I mean, I think the generation sector, certainly in certain regions, there's pretty fierce competition like in PJM or, you know, MISO, all these markets that have what we used to call day two markets, right? But it's been a heck of a challenge. So to take a step back to when you were on the commission, when you were on FERC, there were some, and I was involved with it, there were some crazy battles and sets of proceedings to get folks into either PJM or MISO. And of course, the alliance fell apart and all that. So we got people into these markets and you talked a lot about RTOs and incentives, right? And let me ask you this. This is a great, I think this is an interesting question if I don't say so myself. If you had to do it all over again, right? Looking back on my own career, I'd say, well, I think getting folks into RTOs has had enormous benefits in certain ways. With that being said, what would you do differently having the benefit of experience, putting it that way, almost 20 years now, of these RTOs sort of fully existing day two markets, the way things shook out in terms of membership, what do you think you would have done differently? Would not have compromised on independence as much as I think we had to do. I absolutely, and we talked about it, and it was just kind of one more battle. I would have built in more a performance-based Evaluations, don't even call it performance based rates, right. call them evaluations. At one point, we talked about giving RTOs a report card. What are the five things we want RTOs to do? And how are they doing? I would do, by the way, the same with reliability scorecards as well. If you want to drive change, 
you have investors take a look at somebody's report card and if they got a C in reliability, I think that would change the equation pretty fast. If they got a C in performance, I think that would inform both state regulators, although to my dying day, transmission is interstate and I don't care what anybody says. You can talk about, yeah, there's new investment in PJM and MISO, but there's also hundreds of millions of dollars in a queue and that is inexcusable. We've created all kinds of barriers to entry. I would actually ask the DOE to do more of the evaluations because right now the utilities provide the data that drives the decision-making. And I think utilities, wonderful though they are and caring about their customers, if they're the only inputs to the data, it's really funny how the only outcomes seem to be the ones that they want. So I get the DOE more involved in evaluating all of the proposals. I get DOE to do a study by the way, on the market power that exists, certainly at the seams. And that's the other thing I would have, every time we mentioned the seams issues, the RTOs, the utilities, everybody went nuts. The reality is we're leaving a ton of money on the table. We've created a system that is just not maximizing the efficiency. And again, until you do that, you have customers paying a whole lot more money than they should, or a whole lot of money on things that maybe they didn't actually need. Yeah. Well, you're preaching to the choir in terms of seams issues. As the author of the complaint in EL 13-88, and the reason why I mentioned the year is because I think the last order on compliance came out in 2021, maybe, but that was on behalf of NIPSCO. It's a matter of public record, so it's out there that a complaint that we filed that was seeking to get effective interregional planning between PJM and MISO, because as you know, right up there where NIPSCO sits, I mean, it's PJM and MISO, and they're all interlacing, as one of your colleagues at the time may have said, and it was a real mess. I think you guys actually put some language into Order 2000. Nobody talks about Order 2000, by the way, which I think is kind of amusing, because it was such a huge deal at the time. But now, 20 years later, whatever it is, we talk about Order 1000 a lot, but right. not Order 2000, right? Yeah. But in Order 2000, there was language about scope and configuration. And if you go back and read the complaint we filed, we went into depth on that, trying to make the argument of like, look, in this particular case, you really got to look at MISO and PJM as one giant entity. We got some good things out of the docket, out of the case. There were some reforms that came about, but you're preaching to the choir as far as seams issues. I think there's a lot more that can be done. I think ironically enough, the utilities are leaving value on the table for themselves in terms yeah. of what could be done if they just looked at it. That's a good example is the seams issues may have been treated differently if you knew then what you know now, right? And I also just, one more thing I would change is so we created the market monitoring unit in the aftermath of California, but the intent was market monitoring and enforcement. The intent was that market monitoring group would be the real analytical tool to say, not only like catch the bad guys, but also we were making a lot of rules, still make a lot of rules, what's working and what's not. I wanted to do what you would do in any real business is evaluate, okay, are we encouraging more investment? Are we reducing queue time? Are we doing this? Or do we need to change the rule? Or by the way, is there market power going on? 
Instead, it's, I think, become more of an enforcement unit, which is, again, catch the bad guys, happy to do that. But it's amazing to me how the bad guys are always the little guys, always the traders and the utilities never, you know, they get a couple of million dollars for having, as we've seen in First Energy, apparently bought off every politician, including the PUC. And I think we need to broaden our scope. For example, I've heard a lot of instances recently in the West where one company in particular puts out an RFP for whatever. And by the way, in the languages, if you have ever objected to something we proposed at the PUC or the FERC, you cannot bid. If that's not market power, I do not know what is. So I'd like, again, to have more emphasis on, on real issues and have more monitoring about what's going on than just a pure focus on getting scalps. And getting the scalps, yeah, you get them. But meanwhile, all this other stuff is going on, which again, is a barrier to entry. It's a barrier to efficiency. And it's a barrier to, I think, outside investments. Again, so ratepayers don't have to pay for every bloody thing that comes down the pike. Yeah, my observation on market monitoring units, and for us geeks in the energy industry, we could do 10 podcasts on market monitoring units, but my observation is that the California energy crisis, now it's a long time ago at this point, it's 25 years ago, just about. Anyway, the point is, I think that the people in those roles were so impacted by very euphemistic word, the shenanigans that happened, the really dark scandalous behavior that occurred and ended up being the subject of a lot of proceedings. And then seeing that sort of pop up in the RTOs as they developed, I think they were so spooked by all of that, that the focus of the market monitoring units has really been market manipulation. And we could debate about I, many ways that's a good thing, right? But I understand what you're saying. There's a lot of other areas that they could be looking at. And the interesting thing about it, this is, again, could be a topic for another day, but in terms of the RTO development, and maybe it was a matter of reality that you had to allow for some flexibility, my own experience is almost like the personality of the market monitoring unit in each region developed differently or was different. So like the philosophy, say PJM, is totally different than the philosophy in New York or whatever. That's kind of odd too, right? The things they choose to focus on. That is a great point. I was talking about the market monitoring within FERC itself, but the independent market monitoring okay. units have become kingdoms, particularly in PJM of their own, who make the rules as they go along. And, you know, again, getting back to that analytical tool at FERC, I mean, at one point we talked about should the market monitors report to FERC. I don't know what the right structure is, but I do know that we can't have people out there making rules as they go along. And there were discussions when I was there about that. There continue to be discussions. That's not healthy. And I also think if we'd had the better analytics when the California market design was approved, you would have said, no matter what the fact that everyone in the California caucus wrote to FERC and said, approve this, Someone who really looked at it would have said, wait a minute. First of all, it just doesn't work economically. Right. <laughs> but secondly, you also might have said, and by the way, the rules that we are making are big enough to drive a truck through. As I said at the top, yeah, there were guilty people, but there were guilty people who took advantage because the rules didn't exist. And by the way, a lot of those, we talk about Enron, 
Enron should have been so smart as some of the other players in the market who were bigger cheaters, but weren't regulated by the FERC, if you know who I mean. So yeah, we got the rules wrong, but again, better data, better analytics, all of that would have given better information. And frankly, in the RTO market monitors, I think we need to standardize again, some of the things that they're doing. And again, FERC has the authority, they have not delegated authority to the RTO monitors, which we reminded a few people of more than once. But that means, again, what industry doesn't change? Guess what? We've now created kind of a, kind of an institutional business model for the utilities, but also an institutional model for the RTOs. Right. And we've also asked them to do too damn much. They're supposed to solve every state's individual problem. They're supposed to run the queue. They're supposed to... What is it that we want them to do? And how do we make them independent enough to do it? It's another great topic. Exactly. And I'm someone who's guilty of, I've, I don't know how many complaints over the years I've filed against RTOs or been in proceedings where, you know, I've been on the other side. But you're right. In fairness to them, think of the enormous tasks that we've given them, plural. One issue that you've mentioned several times that I haven't gotten to yet, but is one of the elephants in the room right now in the industry, right, is queue reform and yeah. the status of the queue. One of the things that drives me crazy, I don't know about you, but I hear a lot on the Hill, we need permitting reform. Okay, I get it. Yes, traditional permitting reform. You got to go to the Army Corps of Engineers and get a permit if you're going to deal with a wetland and you got to get an air permit and this permit. And that, I understand all that. It's enormously <laughs> difficult to do anything in this country, quite honestly, that involves building anything, right? So totally understand permitting reform. But respectfully, that's not the major issue. If you talk to people in the industry, as far as adding resources, the overwhelming issue is, oh my gosh, I got to go into the queue. That's yeah. years. Yeah. You know, a lot of times, basically the reaction is we welcome permitting reform, but quite honestly, I'll deal with that. Right. I'll hire consultants and lawyers and we'll go deal with it. The issue is, I'm just going to sit in the queue and yeah. I don't know what the upgrade costs are. And all of a sudden I'm going to get walloped with, I don't know how big of a bill. And then I got to make a decision. And so to me, that's the issue. I'm not a lobbyist. So I don't know, Senator or whoever, who's really focused on this, but that should be the focus of congressional inquiry and say, yeah. is there anything we can do legislatively to fix this? Yeah. Because I know the RTOs are tearing their hair out and they're trying to do things within existing rules like replacement generation or surplus interconnection capacity. And there may be a role for that. What can we do more generically that can get at that problem? And it's been a problem, right, for a long time. Yeah. It doesn't, nobody seems to have any answer. <laughs> and pertinent to the audience, right, it probably, I think for you, will have a broader audience. But I think there's a lot of people interested in connecting storage, that's the number one issue is yeah. how do we navigate the queue? Yeah. Permitting is an issue and having a more rational, literally a rational program on public lands. Yes, that is important. Look, I'm not Albert Einstein, but I think the queue issue is one that is frankly a reflection of our unwillingness to kind of upset the apple cart in terms of who's going to control what. I think that the RTOs would say, we don't have the resources. 
I know a lot of companies, storage particularly, who have offered to pay for the studies by an independent, and by the way, have been rejected. You know what? When somebody offers me help, hell, I take it. And I think this is where DOE and FERC could come down hard. Okay, you can't do it, we'll do it. I think batching projects would make a lot more sense, probably cut down on costs in terms of what needs to be upgraded. I think we need to have a better study on what upgrades are we asking because people have deferred maintenance on the monopoly assets. I think people are still getting asked to be paid for the stuff that probably ratepayers have paid for seven times. It's not a perfect answer, but I think you absolutely have to throw a lot more resources at it. I think it needs to be independent. Again, if I control the data in, I control the answer I get. And I think we need to have more independence in terms of that. I don't think FERC needs to expand its kingdom to do that work, although they can be part of it. There are great modelers at DOE. Again, if you had performance-based rates, if I were looking at some of the cues and some of the lack of movement, I would say, I'm sorry, RTO, you're not, this is one of the four things we're judging you on. And so no adder for members until you resolve this issue. I also think we've been over backwards to say every region is different. Every state is different. Every block seems to be different, but there ought to be more standardization. There ought to be templates. I think that would make everyone's lives easier. It would make the rules clear and it would save a boatload of money and time. I can give you an anecdote on standardization where I'm a bit of a convert on this, right? So we were doing a project for, let's just say, a part of the country that's not FERC jurisdictional, and there are actually a few, and it's not Texas. They were looking at trying to standardize their interconnection agreements. And what I would say is it's funny because I sort of had this perspective, like working on this project the last couple of years. I was like, you know what? The FERC standard GIA is actually really good. And I don't know who the person was at 888 First Street who principally authored it, but that's an example where looking back on it, there were so many fights about all this stuff. It's like, you know what? Thank goodness that in FERC land, on the mainland of the United States, lower 48, so to speak, at least you've got a standardized interconnection agreement that everyone sort of has learned to live with. It may not be perfect, But as a practitioner who's been doing this for a long time, looking at it, I was like, this is actually really good. (laughs) And so, you know, there's a lot of that. You know, I think if you think about it, obviously the pro forma oat, it's a pretty damn good, excuse my language, product. Yeah. It makes sense. It's rational. The standardized GIA, there's a few really big, important examples of that. Standardization is always going to be fought, I think, initially. But when you look back on it, it's like to the extent we have standardized, I think it's been a good product that most people can have either enthusiastically embraced or have learned to live with. Yeah. So I just wanted to add that. No, I think that's important. I think, God forbid, we should mention the horrible SMD. But when you look at what's happened in the market, ooh, funny thing, people have kind of crept along. But again, all these. We're different. We're unique. I think you got to look behind the curtain and say, we're unique because we're trying to preserve our own assets. I think there is absolute reason to look at a lot more standardization. And again, measure it. Did it work? And if it didn't, okay, fine. Then let's look at what does. And that isn't whimsy. You don't do that overnight. But again, when you make any rule, you ought to be, again, John Doerr, 
measure what matters. I think we measure a lot of things, but not the things that really matter. And that's what you see in the outcomes. Yeah. And so, by the way, I did not mention SMD. You mentioned SMD. So, <laughs> but I periodically get notes from people saying, wow, you, did you see this in the market? They're really going towards SMD. And I just chortle, just chortle. <laughs> You know, it's funny. I'll just mention one anecdote. I don't know if you can relate to this, but one of these conferences, right? I can't remember if it was the Energy Bar Association or if it was one of the other major conference sponsors, but I was at a conference around this time that the Order 2000 proposals came into the door. And there was a woman speaker. Gosh, I wish I could tell you who it was because she did a great job. I'd love to pay her a compliment. But she gave a great book, an example of a great book that would match up with each RTO's proposal. And so each RTO, bizarrely, in my opinion, kind of had its own personality. And it was really invested in its own model. And it's really yeah. kind of funny to think. And the one she gave for PJM, which to this day, I'm sorry for my friends in PJM, is so perfect, was Vanity Fair. <laughs> which sort of like... Hey, we're PJM, you know, it's sort of like a picture of a cocktail party. And the one for New York, which I also thought was perfect, at least at the time, was The Great Gatsby. <laughs> <laughs> and so those were two of the ones I remember. The Alliance is long gone, rest in peace. But the one they put for the Alliance was <laughs> Frankenstein. Uh, which, so anyway. Well, it's actually pretty good. They're, all actually pretty good. <laughs> they're actually really good. And so... If this woman's ever happens to listen to this podcast, she should message us and say, hey, that was me who gave that presentation. We need to get her back. That's great. That's really wonderful. I, I would have done PJM, maybe Lords of the Universe or something, but yeah, in their own eyes. And again, I appreciate that they all offer something differently, but I think the world is not so different that everybody needs to do it their way. Right. The cost. I once did a, when I was at FERC, God knows what happened to it. I said, what is the cost of these IT systems that are like out of control? And they right. came up with very obvious reasons. One is people can't make up their minds. And so they keep changing things, but they've hardwired the IT solution. So then you have to start all over again. We haven't mentioned it, but, and this is very unpopular, but the stakeholder process is also a drag on the system. And I appreciate that everyone needs to get, well, no, I don't actually. I My nickname at the bank was Zarina. And there's times that the democratic process doesn't work. I don't want stakeholders deciding what kind of surgery I have when I get some disease. I don't want stakeholders designing my next electric vehicle. Everyone's entitled to their opinion, but they represent very special and very narrow interests. RTOs, again, should be representing, in the way that Congress no longer does, should be representing the interests of everyone, the economic, the environmental, whatever. It's not about power. It's not about protecting your business model. It's about more than that. And that stakeholder process has cost a lot of money. You have companies who send five people to a stakeholder meeting and they're arguing against each other. Like, help me. The, 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 I just have to laugh because I've always found the stakeholder process to be a little bit bizarre. Like, I'm sorry, because I have friends who they're stakeholder representatives for companies and they do a great job representing their companies, very passionate about their issues. And I totally get it. The reason why I think it's bizarre is like, take a step back from the energy industry. What other industry 
behaves like this or makes decisions like this? Is there any other? Because I don't know. I can't no. think of any. No, and there's a great movement, particularly in Europe, that everything needs to be stakeholder driven. And I think stakeholders, landowners, people pay the bills, they need a voice, but the voice is not being well represented in the stakeholder process. And ultimately you are designing very complex systems that serve a larger population than the individual quadrants in the stakeholder process. There has to be a way to get people's voices heard. And we're not in the business of destroying businesses, but we do need to, again, to make sure we have a network that serves the broader interests. And that is beyond one company or two companies or whatever. And again, addresses that balance between customers and investors. That's the word I think is the theme of this episode is balance. I just feel like that sort of struck me over the last I don't know, a couple of weeks where I'm like, we're just out of balance on everything. Everything is a life and death fight for my sector or whatever it is. Yeah. And that should be the theme for this whole episode. I will mention one other point you mentioned about RTOs and proprietary technology and all that. Another anecdote from my own life representing storage interests in MISO. And again, a matter of public record, we filed a complaint on behalf of our client few years back, and I think it led to Order 841 because the commission ordered that relief from the complaint. They ordered it generically across the country. So all the RTOs had to put in provisions to accommodate storage participation in the markets. But the reason why it's pertinent is what you mentioned about software. As a practical matter, it took years to get the implementation done. And when you really drill into the reasoning It was because of software implementation. If you don't have off-the-shelf solutions that you can apply, New York, PJM, MISO, SPP, wherever, that's another issue you're always going to run into because each RTO is going to think they built a better mousetrap. And little things like terminology that's different across regions. At this point in time, does it really make sense for... PJM to use FTR, New York ISO to talk about TCCs, and I forget what the SPP term is. Like, at this point, we've been at this now for 20 years about, can you guys standardize some of this stuff? (laughs) You bring up a point, and there have been like a zillion studies about this, that industries develop their own language in order to protect their position you talk to a doctor, you talk to a lawyer with all due apologies, you talk to a utility guy. When I became a state commissioner, they gave me like this 400-page book of telecom acronyms, and you'd have seven different acronyms for the same piece of wire. And so when I would tour, which I used to spend a lot of time, because that's how you get to know things, is talk to the people who are doing the jobs, not with all due respect to the regulatory Sherpas or the CEOs for that matter. And I'd say, you cannot use any acronyms. Just tell me what it is because honestly, I'm not that bright and I can't figure it out. So just point it, show me and tell me what it is. So yeah, there's literally no reason. Again, it's making people talk about how they have problems accessing, they don't understand. And again, that's among the other reasons people are suspicious of RTOs, because you need more transparency, you need a common language, and you need, again, 
to evaluate what the outcomes are, because if you're not getting what you want, then you need to change the rules. But on IT, yeah. And believe me, there's a lot of people who are willing to let RTOs or anybody spend a gazillion dollars if you've been involved in an IT project, because you got this little nuance and this little, you know what? No, life's not that different. Right. All the engineers will tell me I'm wrong, by the way. So listen, I appreciate the perspective. We could talk all day. I feel like I should let you go because otherwise I'll just keep firing questions and your whole day will be gone. So No, it's been so much fun and I appreciate your interest and your enthusiasm. Even my own children tell me I'm boring. So it's fun (laughs) to find, we have a kind of a support group of nerds. So I appreciate that. Oh, believe me, my kids tell me I'm boring, but that's par for the course in this line of work. (laughs) Exactly. I really appreciate your time. I think the audience will get a kick out of this episode. Really appreciate having you on. You are the second FERC commissioner that we had on. We had Phil Moeller on two or three years ago. Again, really appreciate it. And I hope you enjoyed your time. Any last words for the audience before we go? Yes. That is quit protecting narrow interests and get with the program. Let's go beyond the behavior we see at our national leaders level and put self-interest aside. Because in the long-term best interest of the country, we need to do things differently. Well, here, here, I wholeheartedly agree. And again, I think I will close with this. The word for today is balance. When people look at these issues, whether it's national politics or in this particular case, energy industry issues, try to take a step back and say, what balances all of these really important concerns, because I don't feel like anyone's doing that today. I agree. I agree. And I think FERC tries, but the political pushback they get, I mean, they're independent agencies for a reason, and we need to hold that thought. Well, why don't we leave it there? Thanks again, Nora Brownell. We really appreciate your time. Tons of fun. Great to chat. Copyright Troutman Pepper Hamilton Sanders, LLP. These recorded materials are designed for educational purposes only. This podcast is not legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual participants. Troutman Pepper does not make any representations or warranties, express or implied, regarding the contents of this podcast. Information on previous case results does not guarantee a similar future result. Users of this podcast may save and use the podcast only for personal or other non-commercial educational purposes. No other use, including, without limitation, reproduction, retransmission or editing of this podcast may be made without the prior written permission of Troutman Pepper. If you have any questions, please contact us at Troutman.com.